Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up, until faith could be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's seed and heirs according to the promise. So Paul is really fired up in this letter. Probably as, gets as angry as he and hears than he does in any other letter. And that might be sort of surprising because the issue that's firing Paul up uh, is kind of foreign to us. It appears that this letter was prompted by reports Paul had received about the fact that Gentiles within the church of Galatia were considering circumcision. Uh, Now, the church has its share of controversies and debates. Circumcision just isn't one of them. But it's not hard to understand why it was at that time. Because so much of what it meant to be God's people was to commit yourself to identity markers and certain moral uh, and ceremonial obligations that set you apart from the Gentiles, right? You had to be, to be God's people meant to be a distinct people. Circumcision, the law, made you distinct, set you apart. It was all about following the law. And so for Paul to dismiss all that seems to suggest that God has undergone some sort of significant change of priorities. God had just sort of maybe scrapped plan A and is going to try plan B. Yeah, that's worth a try. And Paul is determined to counter that perception. Right? So these other, his opponents have come in and said, listen, Paul has gone, gone overboard. It's still the same God as before. So these things are still intact. But he's like, no, 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 no. It is the same God. And he's determined that the Galatians understand that they belong to this God, not because God has had a change of plans, but because God, this has been the plan all along. Right? If, if God just changes plans, how trustworthy can he be? No, God is trustworthy. That's what Paul wants. It's all about learning to trust in God's promises. And in this gospel that he preached to them, that was plan A all along. And so Paul does not want to downplay Abraham, Moses, right? No, what he's, he's arguing is that what we see in Christ is the fulfillment of what God was doing in the covenant with Abraham, what God was doing through the law given to Moses. The story of the Jewish people, of course, traces itself back to Abraham. 
It's with Abraham that God makes this covenant. They make promises to one another. For Abraham, the sign of that promise was, of course, circumcision. Uh, That's, and that became the sign that indicated you were in on that covenant too. That you were a part of those promises. But Paul wants to make clear, it's just a sign. Right? In the way a marriage certificate is just a sign that you're married. It doesn't make your marriage. Uh, it's not your marriage. Plenty of couples may have that certificate and not have a marriage, little in the way of a marriage. Paper is not the heart of the matter. Circumcision is not the heart of the matter. What's the heart of the matter? Trust. Trust in God's promises. This is what made Abraham righteous before God. Abraham trusted. Despite his age, despite his lack of offspring, he trusted that God's promises to him were true. Now, what was that promise? Well, in here, Paul emphasizes the fact that it's not simply a promise to be the God of a particular people, a.k.a. Abraham's descendants, a.k.a. Israel. It is a covenant to bless all people, the whole world. That, you know, that is... It is indeed what God said. God says, I will bless you and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. So it's not about circumcision. It's not about the law. It's about faithful trusting in God and these promises. Now, to this, Paul's detractors might have said, okay, fine. But what does it mean to trust in those promises? What does it mean to live by faith? Well, what does it mean to live inside of this covenant and experience God's blessing? I'll tell you what it is. It means to live by God's commands. That is what it means to live. That is the life that is blessed. That's the blessed life. And Paul's like, oh, hold on. Is it really? I would would say, are you saying you can just live under God's blessing and live however you want? No, no, Paul says, I'm not saying that. Well, then what are you saying, Paul? Paul actually does have these sort of arguments with himself. Somebody once said, he thought Paul had two heads. They were like, shall we sin more than the gracial abound? By no means. Anyway, uh, but the Paul say, Paul's, Paul's saying, now remind me, remind me who it is that gave us the law. Moses? Right, right, Moses. And, and Moses, he must have been like, what, a friend of Abraham's? No. Moses was like 200 years after Abraham. So, could, Mo, could Abraham have been faithful? Had, with, could he have lived into that promise? Could he have had that life of blessing without the law? Well, no, because Paul says it's, it's this trust in God's promise. That's what makes for a faithful person and a faithful life. And Paul's right. The law is intimately uh, connected to all that, but he's, he's saying, again, it's rooted in God's promises and trust in those promises. It's not, the law is not essential. It's not eternally necessary. So interesting, Paul speaks of it in this passage as like a prison. The, the, the law uh, works as sort of a prison, and, and by that he's not saying that the law punishes. Uh, that's how we tend to think uh, the, what prisons do. No, it, 
prisons also constrain, right? They keep uh, wrongdoers from continuing to do wrong. And so the law functions as sort of a constraint. Um, you know, because if we operated out of complete trust in God and God's trustworthiness, uh, we would not require the law. Trust in that trust would direct us in the ways that were uh, true and good and right. It's, it's distrust. It's the sense that we're, we're on our own that moves us to operate in ways uh, that are contrary to the law. When we operate out of fear and resentment, uh, when we sense that we've got to take care of ourselves because no one else is going to look out for us, that's when the law is important. The law comes in, steps in and says, whoa, 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 whoa. No. Law shows us how to live uh, when you lack the trust in God uh, to, to do otherwise. I mean, it's, I, think it, I think that was sort of the thinking behind those WWJD bracelets. It was like, ooh, I think I'm going to steal that candy bar. Oh, wait a second. WWJD, what would Jesus do? He wouldn't steal that candy bar. I mean, I think that was sort of the thing. But anyway, that's the idea. Is it's this constraint. It's, this, it's a way of... Uh, hemming us in so that we don't just operate out of fear and, and anger and whatever. All right, and Paul's saying, you know what? The law is all well and good, but it's not required. It's not what is at the heart of this covenant life for these Gentiles. It's not what the, you know, they don't need to sort of adopt that because what they have is Christ. What we all have is Christ. So then the question is, well, okay, how, how, does, how does Christ change things? How is Christ the fulfillment of this story that was, that's, was started uh, with Abraham there? Uh, and here, I would uh, like to invite you to follow a bit of a, uh, there's a bit of a scholarly debate as to what Paul means here. Uh, and good news, the debate, it's about Greek grammar. And now you're on the edge of your seat, right? But it's actually sort of, it's a, it's a fascinating debate, and I think it's important. Um, uh, so to, to help you understand the nature of the debate, I, wanna, I want you to consider a phrase, all right? And w- what you think it means. All right, the phrase is this. Angel dreams. What are angel dreams? Well, it depends. It could be. Angel dreams are when you dream and there are angels in your dream. That would be an angel dream. But the other interpretation could be angel dreams are the dreams that angels have. Right? That would also be an angel dream. So this one, well, it's a dream with an angel in it. This one could have an angel in a dream. If, you know, about, if an angel dreams of other angels, it could just be a dream about their teeth falling out or whatever those other weird dreams are that we have. That would still be an angel dream because an angel's having the dream, right? So you don't know what angel dreams means unless you know the context. All right. There's a similar sort of phrase that Paul uses. And the phrase that Paul uses is, uh, in, in Greek, it's pistis Christu. Uh, and pistis means uh, faith or faithfulness. So it's typically, and our Bible translates it this way, about, about faith in Christ. It's the faith we have 
in Christ. All right? Uh, so what, based on that translation, the idea is, oh, what changes is things is we don't have faith in the law, we have faith in Christ. And that enters us into that covenant, into that salvation, in that blessedness. But more and more scholars are coming around to realize that's not the best translation of pistis Christu. It's not talking about our faith in Christ. It's talking about the faith of Christ. Christ's own faithfulness. That's what saves us. Is the fact that, not our faith, but the fact that Christ was faithful. So it's not what we have. It's what Christ had. In other words, he had complete trust in the trustworthiness of God. Even when everyone else and everything else turned against him or turned away from him, even as he hung on the cross, even as he experienced God turning against him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even then, he remained faithful. He trusted. And the resurrection demonstrates that God is worthy of that trust. God is trustworthy because Jesus lives. He lives eternally. He is this blessed covenant life eternally. The law could never get us there. The law could only constrain our distrust. It could constrain us, it could discipline us, but it could not bring us that. Only Christ can show us that. Christ brings that through his faithfulness. And it's this that saves us. It's his faithfulness that locks us in, that secures for us this eternal, blessed life. How? Paul says, as many of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. That's what baptism, that's why they don't, need, they don't need another sign. They have that sign. They don't need circumcision. They have baptism because that points them to the source of their salvation. It's, baptism is the act whereby we say the baptized has what Christ has. What Christ secured, Christ secured for you. His story is your story because he was faithful you have access to everything he has. The blessing, eternal life, love of God, it's all yours. Now, here's the thing. I suspect that for most of you, this whole debate is probably something you've never heard before. And, and in some sense, it's a rather recent debate in terms of church history. Um, but it's actually been around... The book, the book that kind of started it was published in 1977. So you wonder, well, why is this the first time I'm hearing this? I, I suspect it's because the old translation, uh, I, think, I think a lot of times preachers prefer that one. They prefer to put it back on you, your salvation on you and your faith. Because you, you get a lot of sermons that have, get their punch from that old way of reading it. I call those sermons 
really truly sermons. Sermons where the pastor says, yes, you say, pastor, I have faith. But do you really? Do you truly? Do you really truly? Do you truly really? Right? I don't know, maybe. Okay, I'll do better. Right? That's what gives them their punch. It's to put it back on you. And those sermons don't work when you understand that it's not your faith at all that saves you. It is Christ's faithfulness that saves you. Now, I'm not saying that, or you say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe. No, I'm not saying that. That we don't need to have, I'm not saying you don't need to have any faith. Well, of course you need to have faith. You know, I mean, to experience this life of eternal blessedness, you have to trust. You have to have faith. You can't go around driven by anger and fear and outrage and resentment. Expect to know what it means to live a blessed life. All I'm saying is you don't have to depend on your own faith to get you there. You don't have to worry whether you've got enough faith. Really, truly. It was Christ's faithfulness that did it, that saves you, that brings you in. You, you don't have enough faith. You never will. Or this side of heaven. And that's okay. That is okay. Because it's not your faith that saves you. It is your baptism into Christ. It's being clothed in his faithfulness that does it. So it's a... Man, you get to see, you can begin to see why Paul is so fired up about this circumcision business. At these yahoos and they're, oh, really, truly, do you believe? Well, then you need to do this, this, and this. If you really, truly believe, you need to eat kosher and you need to be circumcised. Paul's like, what? No, no. They've been baptized into Christ. What exactly do you think you're adding to the equation with this stuff? What is it you think you can, th this will do that Christ hasn't already done for them? What does abstaining from pork do to add to death and resurrection? Oh, you need death and resurrection and not to eat pork? That makes no sense. What about that is going to put them over the top? Now, it is sort of an ancient debate, but these things are still very relevant. Uh, last week, I mentioned that my former denomination was going to render a decision related to same-sex ma marriage and transgender stuff. And I had said last week uh, that I predicted that they would punt, that they would recognize that how divisive that was going to be and find a way to sort of kick the can down the road. I was wrong. They voted. And it wasn't close. I'm angry. I'm so sad. And grateful I'm UCC. You know, I never, I never had any intention to be CRC again, the Christian Reformed Church. But, you know, I, I, I was an infant when I was baptized, clothed in Christ. It's a little church in Exeter, Ontario. And when I was baptized, that congregation made a promise, made a promise to me to show me the life, the blessed life of salvation. 
And then, and then we moved when I was three. And, and there were, whether they knew it or not, that next church was taking up that promise. And the church in Holland, Holland, Michigan, Calvary Christian Reformed Church, and they were good folks. And they kept that promise, whether they were aware of that's what they were doing or not. They loved me. And then at age 11, we moved to Grand Rapids, Church of the Servant. Grand Rapids, I moved after college, moved to Akron, went to the, got to be a part of the Akron Christian Church. Those were good people. They loved me. I loved them. And they taught me so much about living into that salvation. They showed me Jesus. I developed faith. Developed, I learned to trust that God loved me because they kept their promises to me. And now I realize my story is not everyone's experience. Lots of people have horror stories about abusive churches, and I may even be in the minority for the positive experiences I had, but those churches kept their promise. I came to trust that God loved me because they did, and they did because God, Christ loved them. That's the way it's supposed to work. So I should be grateful to my denomination, and I am, but I am also angry. I'm angry because this week their decision was essentially this. That the love I experienced from them was not just about what our faithful Savior had done for us. It wasn't just about what he did for me that I could never do for myself. With their decision this week, I learned that all that love was conditional. That part of it was on me. I had to be heterosexual or asexual if I wasn't heterosexual. And I had to be sure my identity aligned with the sex I was assigned at birth. Otherwise, all bets were off. Well, lucky for me. For others. You know, I said at the outset that we might find Paul's outrage in this letter a little hard to understand. The hot button issues of his day are not the hot button issues of our day. You know, Jews and Greeks, slave free. But I think if Paul wanted to revise these verses for a 21st century audience, he might choose some other categories. You know, how might he push it? How might he push us to understand it's not us, it is Christ that saves us. It's not our faith, but Christ's faithfulness. Everything else, everything else is relativized by your being baptized into his death and raised with him to new life. There's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, free male or female, straight or queer, cis or transfer. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Really, truly. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.